Hi everybody and welcome to The Climb, to a podcast where we talk about all things affecting the Latinx community. This episode is something that is very near and dear to my heart, where we'll be talking about domestic abuse and the Latinx community. The reason I say it's very near and dear to my heart is because I've had family members that have gone or are going through domestic abuse, as well as I was a domestic abuse advocate. So I literally did this for a living where I worked with people who were in abusive relationships or were trying to leave abusive relationships. And it definitely showed me the real effect of abuse um, versus what we read in textbooks and just kind of what we see on the news and it just really made me realize the true effect and what it looks like in the real life. Before we get started, I wanted to start with a disclaimer that domestic violence occurs to people of all gender identities and sexual orientations. But for purposes of this podcast, I'll be using female terms to describe survivors, given that domestic violence disproportionately affects women, especially in the Latinx community, with men being the abusers. And when I talk about my specific experiences as an advocate, my client load consisted mostly of Spanish-speaking Latinas, which will be reflected in my word choice when describing my experience with survivors. Um, However, also Latinas are not a monolith, meaning that not all Latinas are the same. So first of all, we can start with what is an advocate. In case you are listening to this and are in an abusive relationship, or you might be listening to this and then realize that somebody you know is in an abusive relationship. And getting in contact with an advocate can actually be pretty helpful. So what is an advocate? There are advocacy agencies for pretty much every county that you can reach out to and you can easily look up and I will talk about some of those local resources for those of y'all who are listening here in Des Moines or Iowa. We will mention that later. But essentially an advocate, the way that I always described it was a professional support system. Somebody who will be there for you to talk about counseling, just um, trauma-informed counseling, or also refer you to different counselors or therapists or psychiatrists, as well as provide emotional support to you, whether you're going through a divorce or going through a criminal trial. They can go there with you. Obviously, right now with COVID, it might look a little bit different, but Throughout this entire process of navigating all of these different organizations, whether it's law enforcement, um, you know, divorce attorneys, just on top of everything else and wanting to know a little bit more about your resources, that is what an advocate does. Someone who specializes in resources around you and for you and is trauma-informed so they won't judge you. They'll help you safety plan, whether it is that you're staying or leaving the relationship. If you're staying, they can help you safety plan in terms of how to keep yourself safe or leave in an emergency. Uh, And if you're leaving, they can help you safety plan. So when you leave, you end up being in the safest, most secure position possible. Throughout all of the counseling sessions that I did, we always went over something called the power and control wheel which essentially talks about the way that abusers use physical, sexual, emotional, and any type of 
abuse and violence to intimidate and coerce and manipulate the people that they are abusing. And I have two separate power and control wheels, but I'm going to focus more on the one that is specific towards immigrant survivors. So it's it resembles a lot of similar things, a lot of similar intimidation and control tactics, but they are used differently. So a common question that is asked by people in tr- whenever they hear about somebody being in an, an abusive relationship is why don't they just leave, right? Sounds pretty simple. You know, they're not chained up, they're not kidnapped, the door is wide open. Why don't they just leave their abusers? Or how come when they leave, they always go back? Why should we even help them? On the surface, it makes sense, right? I mean, they're not chained up. They can literally just leave whenever they want. If something usually is that simple where you can say just, there probably is more layers beneath that that prevent people from doing something that in your eyes might look very simple. Because leaving an abusive relationship is actually very, very difficult. Um, abusers use a lot of tactics, which we will talk about, that essentially manipulate their survivors into staying with them or manipulate them into going back to them. Some of those include emotional abuse, economic abuse, sexual abuse, using children, making threats, using citizenship or residency as a privilege, intimidation, and isolation. So, When a lot of people think of abuse, they think hitting, right? If somebody's not getting hit, they're not in an abusive relationship is what a lot of people tend to think. And that is actually really wrong. That is not true. Uh, A lot of abusers can be physical, but I would argue that most don't get to that point and use different things because if somebody has a bruise on their face or on their body, it's very obvious that something's going on. Whereas if those are emotional, you know, injuries, nobody can see those. And so there, it's a lot easier to hide that sort of abuse. A lot of something that I saw a lot as an advocate was definitely emotional abuse, where the abuser would essentially tear them down make them feel bad about themselves, make the, making them almost, you know, comparing them to other people as in, look at that woman, she's so beautiful, and look at you, you're so ugly, and you're so fat, you're so lucky that I'm here with you. Um, essentially making your, your self-esteem go down as low as it can, because if your self-esteem is low, you'll kind of satisfy for something that you know you deserve, something better. And so it makes it easier for them to control you because if you think that you are lucky to be with them, then why would you leave, right? You think that you're lucky to be with them when really it's the other way around. And with somebody, especially if somebody lacks status, economic abuse is huge. If women, specifically women, um, can't work, um, because they don't have a social security card or it's just harder to find jobs that way and the man somehow does, then, you know, how can you leave when that person has full control over rent money, you know, the car? Think of anything that you might have that is tied to money that makes you have some sort of independence. 
where you essentially wouldn't have that because that person has full control of expenses. And, you know, how can you get an apartment when you can't even get money for a deposit, you know, per se. And something that I think is very big, specifically with the Latinx community, is this is when machismo kind of comes into play. And we will talk about machismo a lot on this podcast because I just, I think machismo has a branch of a lot of problems in the Latinx community and arguably one of the biggest problems in the Latinx community. And this being one of them, where I saw this many times and I've heard of it many times and just in my own personal experience and being Mexican and having a Mexican family and knowing Mexican people, I know that machismo definitely affects when women do actually leave or when they start to tell people that they are being abused. So what is machismo for those of you who don't know? It is essentially the idea that men cannot be hurt, that males are seen as strong and have to be taken care of and because they are, you know, they're more powerful, they're superior to women, we're essentially there to serve them. And so a lot of ideas branch from that general idea that men are superior to women or that men are essentially the protector, the provider, and women are, you know, the opposite of that. So branching into that, let's say somebody does leave. They finally leave, and who do you run to first? You go to your family. You get to your family, and they say, oh my gosh, you know, what happened? Are you okay? And you say, yes, I'm not okay. I'm, I'm being abused, and I couldn't take it anymore, and I left. And they ask you, well, where are your bruises? Well, I don't have any bruises. Well, then how are you being abused? Well, every time he came home, he would essentially make me feel really bad about myself. He would use my insecurities against me. He would use the children against me. He would force me to have sex with him. And so it, it just something it was something I couldn't deal with anymore. And then what if the response is, well, that's your responsibility as a wife. You were there to serve him. It's not the other way around. If he wants to sleep with you, you have to provide that because that's your duty as a wife. He's providing for you financially. So, of course, you have to have his dinner cooked on time in the perfect way without any mistakes because that is your responsibility. Like, Okay, maybe he doesn't even help with the children, but that's your job as a mom. And so now it's when victim bl- blaming comes into play where... Now, this person that built up all this courage to leave this abusive relationship now finds themselves in a position where your own loved ones are discrediting your experience and are not being supportive. Then what do you do? Do you go back? Um, Do you end up homeless? What happens then? One conversation that was particularly very hard to have with some of the clients that I worked with was talking about sexual abuse. Um, Sex in general is very taboo to talk about, um, but I would argue even more so in the Latinx community. And so oftentimes they've never had a conversation about consent and what consent means. You know, again, going back to their role as a spouse or as a wife or whatever it could be, 
They think that it is their responsibility to essentially have sex with their partner whenever they want to. And um, don't really consider that if you don't want to have sex, that's okay. That's what consent is. Consent is not a universal blanket of we're married now. You never have to ask for my consent again. That is not the way that it works. You married, not married, dating, not dating, you know, hookup or not, whatever it is, consent is always something that could be a yes or a no. And so talking with them about those situations where they didn't want to have sex and they felt like they had to and how that can be a traumatic experience because that's rape. You are being forced to have sex with somebody and that is not okay. And validating those experiences for them because maybe even if they don't want to share with you, even just hearing that, they might think back to, yeah, I remember that one time when that happened and I felt really gross afterwards. I felt really violated. But who can I talk to about that when, you know, again, it's very taboo and maybe it's just me. Maybe nobody else has ever experienced this before. There's something wrong with me. Um, and that's definitely, definitely not the case. It happens way too often. And it is definitely sexual abuse. Again, married or not, having children together or not, consent is not a blanket statement. Another big thing that I saw, and again, this is something that can also be very general or universal, is isolation. Whenever you see somebody start to distance themselves from friends and family and suddenly they can't even text you or call you or always have to cancel on you whenever you make plans and you kind of get that feeling that something's wrong, abusers like to isolate because, again, they're just more vulnerable that way if their support system isn't there to keep an eye on them. And so... Specifically with immigrant survivors or survivors that don't speak English, this can be a bigger problem because if you isolate somebody from anyone who speaks English and preventing them from learning English if that's something that they want to do, it's really hard to communicate in the U.S., specifically in places like even like Iowa or more rural areas, um, if you don't speak English. Obviously, you're not going to have that problem in other states like, you know, California, like the L.A. area or even Chicago. But in places like Des Moines, you don't always have somebody who speaks Spanish or another language in an establishment. And it makes it very hard to do anything to even just go to the doctor or to report something to police if you're not going to have an interpreter there or you're, you can't communicate for yourself, that person can easily manipulate a situation. And of course, using citizenship or permanent residency as something to use against the survivor. If they don't have any sort of status and the abuser does, they can use that to hold it over their heads that if they get married really quickly, you know, they can get a green card and it'll all be worked out. And sometimes it doesn't always work that way where they just hold it over their head or they can even miss an appointment and offer, you know, not help with money for the application um, because they know that it's something really important to somebody that doesn't have documents 
And it's something that's so easy to hold over somebody's head, especially if there's children involved and they're afraid that if they get deported, you know, they'll be separated from their children. Abusers know all of that and they can use that so easily against somebody else. And they can even hide or destroy important documents like original copies from their countries that are even harder to get. Whenever I wanted a copy of my Mexican birth certificate, it it took a village to get it. So they know that those things are important and they can easily destroy them or hide them like passport, IDs, healthcare cards, anything that they can hold over that other person's head. And if you're isolated, you can't speak English, you're being abused on the daily basis, and this person has full control over you, you can't just leave. So as an advocate, one of my very important roles was being very familiar with the resources available in the community for survivors. Because like I mentioned, a lot of times these people that do leave these abusive relationships are starting from scratch where they need rent assistance, deposit assistance, gas, you know, electricity, food, and they need help with everything to get started from scratch all over again, furniture, all of those things are really, really important. And I very quickly learned that Latina specifically, especially if they're undocumented, face a lot of barriers in terms of accessing resources. Um, they're even just for general resources for survivors are very limited, but even more so if you don't have an ID or a social security number, it just makes things a lot more difficult. And so a lot of times they know that. And so they're afraid to leave because they know they won't be able to afford to pay for their rent or to provide for their children. And so it just keeps them in that financial loophole with their abuser. And also, I mean, it goes without saying that people of color, but obviously undocumented people, have a complicated relationship, to say the least, with law enforcement. So even if they are in danger, they might be afraid to call 911 because they might think that if law enforcement shows up, one, they won't do anything, or they'll be arrested and essentially deported and again separated from their kids. And they just don't trust systems. I had some people even not want to talk to me because they thought maybe I was somehow affiliated with the government and they don't want any sort of record, name, address, anything to go back to the government and potentially put them in some sort of deportation proceedings. So if they wouldn't even trust me as an advocate who's working for a nonprofit, chances are they're not going to trust police very much or the court system. A lot of times survivors were very confused with me, especially if they've, been, if they've come from different countries where, let's say they do build up the courage to call police. Police show up, make an arrest, book the abuser, and they think this person's going to go away for a long time. Then a couple of days later, the person's out on bond. They're like, okay, so how does this work? You know, I... I did what I was supposed to do. I called law enforcement. They took him. They arrested him. Why is he out before we've even had a court date? And to them, it's really discouraging. And to them, the court system doesn't make a whole lot of sense. 
And, you know, kind of rightfully so. If you're saying this person is violent, has made threats against your life, why are they allowed to bond out? One in three Latinas will experience abuse in their lifetime. And 76% of advocates report that immigrant survivors have concerns about contacting police. So even though domestic abuse is happening at a similar rate or even a higher rate than other identities in the U.S., it is extremely underreported to police. And this issue is not only happening here in the United States. Um, For example, Mexico has this increasingly disturbing high rate of femicide, which is a sex-based hate crime term. Um, It's intentionally killing women and girls because they are female. And again, a lot of that just ties down for machismo and obviously a lot of other things. And while there are obviously a lot of barriers to Latina survivors in terms of leaving or even just staying safe where they're at, there are also a lot of really great resources out there. Some that I will briefly mention are like VAWA, Violence Against Women Act, which allow women who have been survivors of a crime in the U.S. a pathway to citizenship if they don't have legal status. And that is available through the U visa and the T visa, T visa specifically for survivors of human trafficking. A lot of times, um, specifically, like I said, to the area that I served in Ames, Iowa, Story County, Salvation Army, Good Neighbor, Emergency Residence Project, and obviously Access helped people in a variety of ways, whether that was helping them with rent assistance, with well, you know emergency gas cards, with an emergency phone, um, just anything that you can think of. There are resources out there that do not request social security numbers. And I know that Salvation Army kind of was a hit or miss depending on locations. They had different requirements. But for example, Access never asked for social security numbers. No questions asked. We're going to help you. Um, Same with this other program here in Iowa called Safe at Home that tries to keep your address as confidential as possible, where you would get even a special ID and you would use the safe at home address from Des Moines for driver's licenses and other things like that to keep your address as confidential as possible and essentially preventing it from appearing a public record. Um, Another amazing organization here in, in Iowa is Luna. Latinas Unidas para un Nuevo Amanecer, where specifically Latina advocates helping Latina survivors to address, obviously, any cultural barriers and language barriers. They are specialized in that, and they are amazing. And lastly, there's one that I'm going to touch a little bit more on because I worked alongside them for a while, and I just know they are an amazing organization and fully grassroots. It is the COVID-19 Emergency Fund for Story County Immigrants. So this fund came about when, obviously, COVID-19 hit, and the whole world was hit, you know. Suddenly, people are out of jobs, and here in the U.S., we're very lucky where we have these safety nets to kind of help us, whether, you know, we, we get unemployment or, you know, rent assistance, things of that sort. But for 
undocumented immigrants or some immigrants with specific status, there was no safety net. And they still have needs. They still have to pay their rent. They still have to, you know, buy groceries. They still have to pay their utilities. But they don't have an employment. They can't find a job. So now what? And some community members in Ames got together and said, you know what, let's start this fund where people can just donate, people in the community can donate, and we can allocate funds to help people with rent and utilities, and it's specifically for immigrants who do not qualify for government assistance. And it has just grown substantially from then where they thought it was going to be maybe, you know, a couple months or so, and it's been almost a year and they are still standing strong. And again, this is fully grassroots where it's volunteers that are running this fund and put in so much of their time into it. And again, it's no questions asked. You need help, apply, and we'll see what we can help you with. And it has been something that has helped a lot of people to make ends meet that otherwise would not have had another safety net. So I am going to encourage that you look into it. And if you can't afford to donate, because I know that times are rough, send the link to somebody that you think might. You can literally just Google COVID-19 Emergency Fund for Story County Immigrants. And I will also post the link here in the description if you want to take a look. But I can't emphasize enough how much this fund has helped a lot of people in our community like I said, specifically the Ames and Story County community. Just amazing. I just love things that are just grassroots where it, it literally is a group of immigrant allies that just want to help the community and we need more funds like this. So again, I will post that link there um, because it's something that helped a lot of the survivors that I worked with and just other members in the community and there can never be enough resources for those that lack resources otherwise. One in three Latinas have experienced domestic violence in their lifetime. 50% of Latinas who experience abuse never report it. Due to barriers like anti-immigrant laws, Latinas are half as likely to report abuse versus survivors from other ethnic or racial groups. One in 12 Latinas have experienced domestic violence in the past 12 months. 63% of victimized Latinas experience multiple acts of victimization. Non-immigrant Latina survivors contact formal services for intimate partner violence resources more often than immigrant Latinas. Most recent immigrant Latinas may not be as familiar with laws, options, and possibilities regarding their domestic violence experience. 44% of Latinoas under 25 years old know a victim of domestic violence. So, if you are somebody that you know is going through domestic abuse, please take down the following hotlines. This is the hotline for the National Domestic Violence Hotline. It is 1-800-799-7233. For those of you here specifically in Iowa, you can call the Iowa Victim Service Call Center at 1-800-770-1655. Thank you.
thank you for tuning into this episode. I know that it is a very difficult conversation to have and to listen to, but obviously very important, especially in the Latinx community where Latinas disproportionately face domestic abuse. Please, if you know somebody, talk to them and at least just let them know that you're there for them whenever they're ready to talk or whenever they're ready for resources and support them in whatever way that you can. And if you are listening to this and you relate to any of what I just said, you can reach out to me or you can call those hotline numbers and I can get you connected with somebody as well. Um, But thank you so much for listening. Remember, you're not alone. We're in this climb together and I look forward to having you back here soon. Thank you.